But what do you mean by come back? I've never gone anywhere. <laughs> so far as the political scene has been there, I've always been there. That was Indira Gandhi speaking to a throng of journalists and supporters during a visit to London in 1978. She looked and sounded unfazed, even though her political career appeared to have tanked after the 1977 elections. In fact, through a series of well-thought-out PR moves, she was on a comeback trail. And if I may say so, it is the Janata Party which has helped me to remain in the forefront. Gandhi's resurgence irritated the Janata government, which had ridden into power on a wave of public anger at the atrocities of the emergency. But its attempts to hold Gandhi and her aides accountable were failing, and it opted for more dramatic means. She was arrested twice on charges of corruption and abuse of power. Even Janata president Chandrasekhar later admitted that this was a mistake. The allegations didn't amount to much and Gandhi turned her arrests into a national spectacle. I said at that very time being the president of the Janata party that was a big mistake and that was done on a very flimsy ground. There was neither any preparation and anything which is done in parla- uh, in politics to seek vengeance, to wreak vengeance it bounced to recant that was a wrong step that was one thing in which uh, people began became suspicious about the functioning of the janta government the janta government's missteps weren't surprising they were a hastily formed coalition thrown together with only one common ground their animosity towards indira gandhi there were growing fears that this government would soon disintegrate despite the chaos and the difficulty of keeping the coalition together the janta party was making good on its promise to restore fundamental rights and democratic government it revived a culture of consultation in parliament it stayed out of the judiciary's business and it let the press function freely it looked like the constitution was healing in the previous episode we told the story of how the indira gandhi government killed the basic structure doctrine and established parliament as supreme Now we'll follow the Janata government's efforts to repeal Gandhi's drastic amendments. We also look at why it took Nani Palkiwala to fight one more case to revive the basic structure and put an end to India's first major constitutional crisis. I'm Raghu Karnad and this is the 7th and final episode of season 2 of Friend of the Court. Our series about the most important case in the legal history of independent India. The future constitution of India. All the world admires a deep well done. We can say so that we have done this action well. In 1975, 50-year-old Shanti Bhushan had pulled off the unthinkable. He had cross-examined a sitting prime minister in court and gotten her election disqualified. That case put Indian democracy through a trial by fire. 
After the emergency, he got the chance to apply his legal acumen in a different context. He was picked by the Moraji Desai government to be its law minister. Now, another seemingly enormous task lay before him, undoing the damage caused by the emergency, in particular, the damage of the 42nd Amendment. As we heard last time, the amendment breached the basic structure in at least two ways. It subordinated three key fundamental rights to all directive principles, and it prevented courts from hearing any challenges to constitutional amendments. The Janta government was determined to repeal it. But the government soon found itself in an inconvenient political situation. It had the numbers in the Lok Sabha, but the Congress still controlled the Rajya Sabha. Here's Shanti Bhushan himself, explaining the situation in an interview to the news channel IBN Live, years later. It was difficult to push it through hmm. on account of the fact that it required two-third amendment in each house separately, while the Janta Party had more than two-third majority in the Lok Sabha. It not, did not have even one-third in the Raj Sabha. Therefore, the question was how to get the support of the Congress for these amendments when only a year back, during emergency in 1976, they had passed the 42nd Amendment. The Janta government had neither the inclination nor the power to effect change in Gandhi's brute majority style. Instead, it reached across the aisle and it consulted all political parties, including the Congress, to build consensus. The consultations resulted in the 44th Amendment. Introduced in May 1978, the amendment aimed to prevent future governments from misusing emergency powers. For example, it said the president could proclaim an emergency only on the written advice of the cabinet. The lawyer Prashant Bhushan, Shanti Bhushan's son, tells us about another significant provision. So, one of them was that uh, the most important part of the 44th Amendment was that during an emergency, he said that Article 21 would not be suspended. That is, the right to life and liberty. As we heard previously, it was the suspension of these rights that allowed the government to jail its opponents without trial during the emergency. Uh, the 44th Amendment provided that. And while other fundamental rights could be suspended, Article 21, so as to preserve at least habeas corpus, etc. Then, in keeping with its election promise, the Janta government made the fundamental right to property an ordinary legal right, meaning violating this right would attract less severe scrutiny. These provisions sailed through Parliament. But the 44th Amendment failed on two other fronts. Congress MPs in the Rajya Sabha voted against repealing the dreaded Article 31C, meaning the rights to equality and freedom could still be taken away in the name of directive principles. That wasn't the only miscalculation on Bhushan's part. The government also failed to restore the court's power to review constitutional amendments. Bhushan had proposed an unusual scheme, conduct a referendum and let the public decide on the validity of all future amendments. That proposal failed. Parliament remained free to amend the constitution however it liked without fear of court action. The 44th Amendment was passed in December 1978, leaving two of the worst provisions from the emergency era still intact. Political processes had failed to revive the basic structure doctrine. But not all was lost. No, the idea is not 
president, which you have been standing for, the moral values, are the ideals and the values to which we are deeply committed. I think you and I can get along very well. <laughs> On the other side of the planet, in Washington, D.C., Nani Palkiwala followed these events with growing impatience. The Janta government had handpicked him to serve as India's ambassador to the United States. A month after the 44th Amendment came into effect, Palkiwala told the press that he was going back to India to fight for the supremacy of human rights. So Palkiwala had said that, never mind, even if the Janta government was not able to undo these two provisions, he would come to India and he would argue the matter before a constitution bench, which is exactly what he did. This is former Supreme Court judge, Justice Rohington Nariman. In 1979, he was fresh out of college and worked with Palkiwala as a junior counsel. So he had come back and he had made that promise in the United States that I will take up this matter and I will do it myself. And in pursuance of that promise, he contacted Mr. Dazachanji, asked Mr. Dazachanji to, to fish out a petition which would raise a challenge to Article 31C. We've met J.B. Dada Chandji before. He was one of the solicitors who put together the team in the Keshavananda case. In 1979, he pulled out a petition filed by Minerva Mills, a silk textile unit in Bangalore. Years earlier, the Indira Gandhi government had said that the mill was being mismanaged and it took control, saying it was for the collective good. Palkiwala wanted to use the Minerva Mills petition as a springboard to make his broader point that the remaining provisions of the 42nd Amendment violated the basic structure. The petition was set to come up before a five-judge bench led by the Chief Justice of India, Y.V. Chandrachur. Since the emergency was lifted, the Supreme Court had been going through a reckoning of its own. Its lowest point had been the habeas corpus case, in which it held that citizens do not enjoy the right to life and liberty during an emergency. The Supreme Court's attitude was far from satisfactory during that period. Supreme Court should have been more bold. They should have tried to uphold the rights of the people against the, in, 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 in emergency. That Supreme Court failed. There is no doubt about it. Justice P.N. Bhagwati, whom you just heard, himself ruled for the government in the habeas corpus case, and he later regretted it. Chief Justice Y.V. Chandrachud had ruled in favour too. In fact, in 1978, when it was his turn to become the Chief Justice, noted public intellectuals and lawyers wrote an open letter against his elevation. But the Janta government refused to supersede him, and it allowed convention to take its course. The government also reversed the transfer of judges who had ruled against Gandhi during the emergency. And these measures went some way in restoring trust between the court and the government. Sandeep Thakur, a lawyer in Palkiwala's team, noticed a shift in the vibe at court. When the right to property was turned down, the judges became braver. After emergency and after Indira Gandhi, after the elections, the mood had changed. The mood had changed, you know. Hearings began in October 1979. Palkiwala's arguments in this case might best be described as his greatest hits from Keshavananda. First, he attacked Article 31C. He said it was absurd that it remained even after the emergency was lifted. The continuation of this provision meant that governments had the legal backing to violate the rights to freedom and equality without even declaring an emergency. Nariman tells us more. Now, one of the things he said, and I remember this very clearly, is 
the challenge to 31C. It was in the form of three beautiful sentences. He said, 31C has made the constitution stand on its head, full stop. Whereas, fundamental rights are enforceable in courts of law. They have been rendered unenforceable, full stop. And whereas directive principles of state policy are not to be enforced in courts of law, they have been made enforceable in the place of fundamental rights. That was the sum and substance of the challenge to 31C. Then he attacked the 42nd Amendment for expanding Parliament's amending powers. He said that a limited amending power was part of the basic structure. Palkiwala argued that by taking away court review, the 42nd Amendment reduced the judiciary to a silent spectator. Proceedings in court sometimes digressed into the merits of different ideologies. Now, Justice Umtwalya was one of the judges in the Minerva Mills case, was a very garrulous judge, he kept speaking. And at one point, he went on and on about socialism and how Mr. Kvalkiwala is essentially espousing capitalism. That was the sum and substance of a 40-minute harangue. All this while, Palkiwala was nervously gathering his thoughts, looking between his colleagues and the judge. And finally, at one point, he says, has your lordship quite finished? Very sweetly. So the harangue stopped. He said, yes, I finished. So he said, not even eh? And he shouted the word lunatic. Shouted it, huh? and the effect was electric. Would ever think of crossing the wall from West Berlin to East Berlin. Now, with that kind of, you know, answer, to socialism versus capitalism. I mean, it was like an atom bomb. After that, there was nothing but rubble. The government's turn to argue came in November. Attorney General Lal Narayan Sinha led the arguments. He didn't push back against Palkiwala's contentions on the amending power. He only focused on the validity of Article 31C. Sinha insisted that this clause improved the constitution because it prioritized social and economic justice. Another lawyer we've met before was by his side. K.K. Venugopal was by then additional solicitor general. His father, M.K. Nambiar, had first introduced the idea of basic structure way back in the Golaknath case. We spoke to Venugopal, who is now 92, about Minerva Mills. He remembers feeling that this case was a lost cause for the government. And therefore, to say that you will not be able to entitle it to challenge any amendment was something which no government in its senses should have passed. They were practically impossible to defend them. The government was giving itself the power to put in a declaration for any law, saying this is for the power of directive principle. And the fundamental right was taken away, 14 and 19. Therefore, it was a very difficult uh, thing to defend. Arguments ended on November 16th, and the bench reserved its judgment. The petitioners were optimistic. From the way they were questioning the Attorney General, who appeared on the other side after Palkiwala, and Mr. Venugopal, who happened to be my senior later, who was the then additional Solicitor General, it did seem like they were largely in favour. And by the time it ended, we were pretty sure that we would go through. In May 1980, six months after the hearings concluded, the court issued its judgment. It answered two questions that have appeared so many times they'll be very familiar to you. First, did Parliament have unlimited amending power? 
this was straightforward. All five judges said no. They reiterated the Keshavananda judgment. Parliament's amending power was limited, so it could not take away the court's power to review constitutional amendments. Justice Nariman takes us through that decision. 368, 4 and 5 went. First on the ground that all amendments could not be touched, even if there was a procedural stack. And second on the ground that there was no question that as Sirvai and the Attorney General for India at that time, Nirande in Keshavananda, had conceded that suppose, for example, you were to abolish the entire constitution and put nothing in its place, would such an amendment stand? Answer was, of course not. There should be a basic structure of a constitution left. And if that is not left, then there's no constitution left. The second question, were fundamental rights inferior to directive principles? Four judges, including Chief Justice Chandrashud, said fundamental rights were part of the basic structure. These rights could not be taken away on the pretext of implementing directive principles. Chief Justice Chandrachud wrote a judgment in which he actually spoke of the directive principles as being ends of legislation and the fundamental rights being means to an end. The majority said that the balance between rights and directive principles formed the core of the constitution. Together, they served to achieve social transformation. One without the other would be meaningless. And said both have to be followed. And if there is therefore any coach and four driven into this scheme of things, then obviously such amendment would violate what we call the basic structure of the Constitution of India. One judge, Justice P.N. Bhagwati, partly dissented. What we didn't realize was that, was that Justice Bhagwati would dissent on 31C. On 368, 4 and 5, all five of them were ad item. Meaning, they were all in agreement. But on somehow or the other, on Article 31C, Justice Bhagwati went the other way. And he went the other way by saying that, look, in essence, we are socialist. Since we are socialist and if there's a law truly made, and herein lies the catch, truly made to implement some socialist program, which is covered by a directive principle, then where's the question of any fundamental right coming in the way? I mean, he put it like that, you know. So Justice Bhagwati took this route and said, if there's something absolutely necessary with the directive principle, then that part of the law stands shielded. The Minerva Mills case was the first time since Keshavananda that the courts considered the question of amendments and fundamental rights in detail. Palkiwala later said that it saved our freedoms from being euthanized. The judgment finally cleared up seven years of confusion about what Keshavananda had actually held. But above all, it was a lesson for future judges. It showed how they could identify features of the basic structure in the constitution. Lawyer and constitutional scholar Gautam Bhatia explains. I think in many ways it is the most uh, detailed judgment on the basic structure because you know, the court explains that the, uh, the doctrine is not something free-floating or freestanding you know, in the sky, beyond the constitution. Uh, actually, it is, uh, uh, you, you extract basic uh, structure or basic features uh, from uh, the constitutional structure and the design. The political sands were shifting even as the Minerva Mills case was being heard. The Janta government was rapidly disintegrating and by January 1980, Indira Gandhi was back in power. What the Congress has achieved in the past, 
and what the people hope we can do in the future. But this was a change in Indira Gandhi. She no longer claimed that socialism was the answer to all of India's problems. She trod softly in constitutional matters, choosing subtler means to undermine the courts. Her government filed for a review of Minerva Mills, but the attempt didn't gain traction. With that, the constitutional crisis which began 13 years ago with Golaknath finally came to an end. The age of the basic structure doctrine dawned just as an age of political innocence was ending. It had emerged just when many Indians first realized that the government they elected could turn against them. It would become a crucial safeguard in times of future crisis. It ensures that when you have uh you know a super majority a dominant executive a dominant party in parliament as in indira gandhi's time and if in the future that that kind of dominance in parliament reoccurs uh then uh, something as basic as the right to life right to personal liberty and equal treatment uh and the rule of law is protected by uh the basic structure from you know a single party deciding to to change Uh, the constitutional structure in nani palkiwala's words the basic structure ensured that parliament could not use its power to assume the role of quote official liquidator of the constitution even former government counsel hm sirvai one of its earliest and most erudite opponents warmed up to it and so he changed his mind and accepted that given the circumstances uh, and what we'd gone through the basic structure doctrine was a good thing and protected democratic values and uh, human rights and fundamental rights of the citizens of this country this is navroz sirvai the senior advocate here he's telling us about why his father changed his mind about the basic structure and i think what nailed it for dad was the outrageous violation of the constitution not to mention other outrages perpetrated during those 18 months during the emergency because he felt that or thought that in his wildest dreams he never thought that parliament in its constituent uh, character could be so shamelessly abused uh, as it was during the emergency the emergency shook up hm sirvai's world view He no longer believed that elected representatives could be trusted to do what's best for the people and he called for checks on their power. Sirvai said that the parliament could not be allowed to destroy the values envisaged in the constitution of a free democratic society. He supported even a vaguely defined basic structure doctrine against the quote grave consequences of unlimited amending powers. Sirvai's original fears that the basic structure doctrine would cripple parliament haven't come to pass. The constitution has been amended over 70 times in the 50 years since the doctrine was developed, but there have been just 22 reported cases which challenged constitutional amendments using the doctrine. On the whole, the court actually used it to strike down amendments only 7 times. But it would be a mistake to judge the basic structure only by that yardstick. Constitutional crises come in all shapes and forms. Keshavananda was the result of a crisis triggered by parliament's amending power. But in the years since, we've also had crises created by other forms of political and state action, and the court has used the basic structure to settle those. It's done so by identifying new essential features and expanding the basic structure. 
If you look at the number of cases which have expanded or have actually defined what is the basic structure, they're actually only a handful. And that's not a bad thing at all. Because if you're talking about something being so central and such a fundamental kind of a core, then you can't spread yourself too thin. This is Lawrence Liang, Dean at the School of Law, Governance and Citizenship at Ambedkar University, Delhi. Liang takes us through some of these cases. But if you look at the cases where the question of what has been determined to be a part of the basic structure, those are actually very pivotal cases. So to name a few, in the Bombay judgment, the Supreme Court held secularism to be a part of the basic structure. The preamble has been held to be a part of the basic structure. The Bombay case was about centre-state relations. The verdict helped define more clearly and narrowly the circumstances for imposing president's rule. Among other things, the court held that secularism was part of the basic structure and the central government could impose president's rule if a state government posed a threat to the secular fabric of the nation. Judicial review is a part of the basic structure. Judicial independence has been read in the NJAC judgment to be a part of the basic structure. In the NJAC case, which Liang just referred to, the court struck down a judicial reform law passed by the Modi government in 2014. It said that the law violated the basic structure because it gave the executive a greater say in appointing judges. The entire idea uh, of fundamental rights as, the, as you know, part of the basic structure. So these are literally you know, the only instances that you will find where the courts have actually defined what is basic structure. Um, but they are so important that they are enough. These principles can be found in various parts of the Constitution. Many of us take it for granted that these are essential features of our political system. But as our history shows, once a political party gains enough power, the temptation to change or to suppress these principles is strong. And this can place the Constitution and our future as a democracy in grave danger. At moments like these, courts have used the doctrine of basic structure to protect the Constitution. That's why we've come to see it, in symbolic terms, as something like the moral compass of our democracy and a reflection of our values as a nation. The German scholar Dieter Konrad first introduced the idea of basic structure to India all the way back in 1965. At the time, the dominant view was that courts could not examine amendments passed by elected representatives. This notion was based mostly on the experience of democracies like the US, with a much older constitutional tradition. There were no immediate fears that a ruling party would fundamentally reshape the founding document. But by 1973, the Indian constitution seemed on the brink of a collapse. One that many had assumed was inevitable in a fragile, newly independent post-colonial nation. Its constitution being subordinated to brute political power. Keshavananda opened a new chapter in constitutional development. Its idea of the basic structure has since resonated with other countries that have witnessed similar dilemmas. Gautam Bhatia throws more light on the doctrine's influence outside India. In the 50 years you know, after it was articulated in India, it has uh, really been discussed and debated a lot um, across the world. So, for example, some of the countries where it has been accepted, for instance, uh, has been have, have been Bangladesh and Pakistan, uh, two of our neighbors. So it's been accepted over there uh, in Slovakia, uh, in Belize, in Colombia, 
and so you know all these countries have have accepted uh, the doctrine applying reasoning rather similar to the indian supreme court so i mean i think it really brought this idea of the basic structure of uh, of substantive limitations to check parliamentary abuse of constitutional amendments into the global constitutional lexicon uh, and that's an enduring legacy of of the judgment Keshavananda Bharati is the story of how the Supreme Court created the ultimate safeguard for our constitution. It's also about the political conditions that made such a safeguard necessary. It was an assertion that the constitution was the life force of our democracy, that the founding charter was not a plaything of temporary political majorities. For the most part, it seems that politicians have got this message. There's been no serious attempt to undermine the constitution fundamentally since the 1970s. Gautam Bhatia sees this as a subtle impact of the doctrine on our politics. In many ways the impact of such doctrines is not visible in court judgments but actually in cases that never come to court you know so uh, in in ways as for example parliament knowing that a certain kind of an amendment would violate the basic structure would refrain from doing it altogether that could be partly because of the rise of coalition politics which made it difficult to build consensus for radical constitutional change. Let's take an example. In the year 2000, the Vajpayee-led NDA government set up a commission to review the constitution. But one of its coalition partners insisted that the recommendations should not violate the basic structure doctrine. That is the purpose for which the commission is reviewed. The commission to review the constitution is proposed to be set up. The basic structure and the core ideals of our constitution however will remain inviolate it was a sign that the doctrine and the idea that the constitution is supreme had gained acceptance in political culture as well that is until now as india experiences another era of one party dominance it's hard not to feel like the constitution is at a crossroads once again Government ministers have criticized the courts for overstepping their authority and undermining parliament. Some prominent establishment figures have even called for rewriting the constitution. While there have been no efforts to do that yet, the basic structure doctrine isn't quite enjoying peak popularity at the moment. Take Vice President Jagdeep Dhankar's remarks, for example. एक बहुत गलत परंपरा चालू हुई. 1973 में केशवानंद भारती के केस में सुप्रीम कोर्ट ने बेसिक स्ट्रक्चर का आइडिया किया कि पार्लियामेंट कॉन्स्टिट्यूशन अमेंड कर सकती है पर बेसिक स्ट्रक्चर को नहीं विद ड्यू रेस्पेक्ट टू द जुडिशियरी आई कैन नॉट सब्सक्राइब टू दिस देन रंजन गोगोई फॉर्मर चीफ जस्टिस ऑफ इंडिया लेटर नॉमिनेटेड टू द राज्यसभा सेड द डॉक्ट्रिन हैज अ डाउटफुल बेसिस सर आई हैव टू से समथिंग अबाउट द बेसिक फीचर माय व्यू इज दैट द डॉक्ट्रिन ऑफ बेसिक स्ट्रक्चर ऑफ द कॉन्स्टिट्यूशन has a debatable a very debatable jurisprudential basis the growing attacks on the doctrine have led to nervous speculation about the government's intentions in court chief justice of india dy chandrachud brushed aside gogoi's remarks as quote just opinion at the 2023 ram jethmalani memorial lecture chandrachud refused to wade into the subject of basic structure the topic of the day of course which Mr Mahesh Jethmalani has thought everybody should open up with is about the basic structure doctrine much as i admire mr ram jethmalani 
One thing I wouldn't like to share with him is his ability to court controversy. So I thought that if I have to do something about this doctrine, I should do it through my judgments and not in an off-the-court pronouncement. But others, like the legal legend Fali Nariman, have been less equivocal. So in your opinion, has Justice Gogoi made a bad mistake claiming there's no basic structure? I'm afraid so, but but, but, but it's all right. He, he, people, different people may hold different views. He may, I think so, I think so. People have a right to hold different and views. Different views, yes. But his view, in your opinion, is wrong. Yes, he's, he's totally wrong, yes, totally wrong. There's a new seriousness to all this talk about fundamentally changing our constitution. It's something we haven't seen since Indira Gandhi's time. Of course, the big difference is that now the constitution has an anchor, and that is the basic structure. Lawrence Liang tells us how it complicates any exercise to rewrite the constitution. The task of radically overhauling the constitution is not going to be an easy one. You're always going to have this 13-judge bench coming in the way. The only manner in which you would be able to overrule it is by constituting a larger bench, as the Indira Gandhi government attempted to do in the aftermath of the Keshwananda Bharti judgment. But even after that, I would imagine that it would not be easy. In these seven episodes, we've traced the arc of India's first major constitutional crisis. It's a story full of arcane points of law distant from our everyday lives. At times, we struggle to unpack finer points of laws and complex arguments. But through it all, we kept returning to a question that is relevant to all of us. What are the values that define us as a country? And what role do they play in our daily lives? When it was adopted in 1950, the Indian constitution was seen as a radical experiment. It offered a liberal democratic framework for an unwieldy country beset by extreme poverty, inequality, and injustice. Values like freedom, equality, and dignity gained new meaning for ordinary Indians. The constitution was the vehicle by which they would achieve their personal and collective aspirations. But these aspirations were not always compatible. Land reforms quickly emerged as a major flashpoint. For the first decade or so, that conflict played out within parliament but it was only a matter of time before the constitution itself turned into the battleground. The conflict began to be framed as a binary. Who was supreme, the constitution or the people? Opposing forces pitted individual freedoms against economic well-being. Nani Palkiwala summarized the conflict. Do not make the mistake of thinking that so long as you enjoy your freedoms, your poverty cannot be eradicated, that bread and houses cannot be made available for the poor. If today they are not made available, it is not the fault of the constitution, it is the fault of the policies which are being pursued. For a long moment, it looked like India would veer away from democracy. But from the depths of this crisis came a powerful six-word phrase. Parliament cannot amend the basic structure. This sentence represented a coming of age for Indian constitutionalism. It was a decision that we would not barter our freedoms to fulfill a leader's aspirations or desire for power. And that ruling parties and parliamentary majorities, which come and go, would not be allowed to ride roughshod over our founding ideals. We end the season with some words from Anil Divan. I will share with you what Nani Palkewala stated in 1984 in We the People. And I quote once more, in the affairs of nations, as in the business of the elements, 
winds shift, tides ebb and flow, the boat rocks. Luckily, we have let the anchor hold. We have survived as a united democracy, a historic achievement, unquote. The anchor, in my view, has been our constitution and constitutional values. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this epic constitutional saga to the end. You can find out more about the case and see the original writ petition and Anil Divan's handwritten notes at anildivanfoundation.org. This podcast is brought to you by the Anil Divan Foundation. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Raghu Karnad, and this has been Season 2 of Friend of the Court.